As the children are making their way out, if you take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 4. As you read through the Old Testament, this is one of those texts that you might breeze by. And it might kind of catch your attention and you wonder what in the world is going on. And then you continue reading past it because you have no idea. Um, I, I think God's word includes what it includes for very important reasons. It is often hard for us to grasp them. And so I think this text before us today will hopefully be encouraging in the sense that I do think it's challenging and Hopefully we can give light and clarity so that God's word might move and work in his people. I'm going to read verses 18 through 31. So this is Exodus chapter 4. Let me just bring you up to speed. God has spoken out of this burning bush. He's called Moses to lead in a terrifying endeavor where he is going to go speak to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. He's going to address and challenge him. And then he's going to gather Israel and lead them out to freedom. God has granted to Moses uh, some sense of management over incredible wondrous signs. Remember the staff turning into a serpent, his hand turning leprous, and then his ability through the staff to turn the water of the Nile into blood. There, there clearly ends up being more that Moses is deputized to do for the Lord. And then Moses' somewhat faithless response. God, I, I don't have the ability to speak clearly to your people. God says, I made your mouth. I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. And he says, well, please send someone else. And God says, go. And that's where we pick up the story this morning of Moses' struggle with faith and obedience. In verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. And sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he left him alone. And it was then said, A bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak to all the speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. 
and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. All right, we have a series of events that are kind of packed together as Moses leaves the burning bush in order to get him in right standing on the doorstep of Pharaoh. And so we have about five different, maybe because say episodes or chapters, that he just jams together in a summary statement so that we can get to that place where Moses is confronting Pharaoh. So I want to frame them just in, in terms of simple thematic kind of framing by suggesting to you that this text is actually following through on the theme that's really explicit at the beginning of faith and obedience. Like in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 1, very clearly, this is Moses' concern. Look in verse 1 with me. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Belief speaks to the internal. Listen speaks to the following through and obedience. And this is a concern. So like you come down to verse 5. God is talking to him and says, I'm giving these signs that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And then again, look down in verse 8 and 9. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to you. Verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to you. So there's this concern for both faith and obedience. Faith, believe, listen has the idea of listen to do. You know, it's somewhat like a parent when you tell your children to do something and they don't move and you say, are you listening? You're really not questioning their hearing. You're questioning the fact that their heart has yet to engage their body in moving. Well, that's, that's Moses' concern here. His concern is not about their hearing ability. It's about their responding to his words. Okay, so that's the, the concern. Well, we come to verse 18, and Moses is giving us a little bit of a biographical sketch of his faith response. Because he struggled. Remember, send someone else. I don't think they're going to listen to me because my mouth can't speak very well. Moses is struggling with his own response. God has spoken. He doesn't believe. And he's not obeying very quickly. And now we see in this text, I think, Moses showing us how God graciously responds to his struggle as all of us have a tendency to struggle with both faith and obedience. So, so let's just begin at the outset here, and recognize that Moses, after being challenged by God to go, begins by obeying. You, you with me in verse 18? Verse 18, Moses does what? Moses went. Look down in verse 20. Moses took his wife. Then he went to the land of Egypt. Then he took his staff. So you have he went, he took, he went, he took. God's telling us something about Moses' response here. What did he do? He obeyed. He's starting to engage in, in a following through by faith in what God has told him to do. In fact, when you come down to verse 21, you'll see it again. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, and, and then Moses does what? He goes back to Egypt. Verse 29, Moses and Aaron went, and they gathered the people of Israel, and they, they obey the Lord. But, but as we get to there, we see this 
explanation in verses 21 and following of God's care and concern for his people. It's kind of a summary declaration as God is sending Moses away from the burning bush, or maybe Moses is summarizing God's speech to him so that Israel and now the church don't forget what God has actually called him to. Look in verse 21 with me. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse, speaking of Pharaoh, if you refuse Pharaoh to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. To me, this is significantly helpful, at least in just the explanation of why we have that final plague or tragedy within Egypt. Why did God have the Passover angel destroy all the firstborn children in Egypt, all the firstborn even of the cattle? Why did God do that? Well, because in this text here, he declares that Israel is his his firstborn son. That is, Israel has this unique privileged place, firstborn children received a double inheritance. They were, generally speaking, the children through which the promises for, like if we go back to the original promises that come to Eve, and then we see them traced down to Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, usually it goes to the firstborn child. Now, you might, you might remember because all of the times in which God swerved from the usual, like with Jacob, where Esau is actually the firstborn, and God says, no, we're going to Jacob here. And so there's we see, we see the, the lack of normalcy because it's highlighted in Scripture. But the normal thing in Hebrew culture was the firstborn son is that, that child that was honored and carried the family line on and inherited kind of the family reputation and significance and got a double portion in the inheritance. But there's more going on than that. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is getting ready to pass away. He's wrapping up his ministry to Israel And he uses the same concept to speak to God's grace to Israel. We will not read this whole song of Moses, although it is fantastic. Look with me in verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. Uh, I don't think... We should miss this opportunity. You know, when we sing the song, like a cleft in the rock, the point is, is God here is a place of protection and shelter for his people. Like a craggy mountain in which his people can shelter in the storms. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations and ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind and he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion 
is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste in the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young and spreads out its wing, catching them and bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided. No foreign god was with him. He made him Right on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Basham, and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine, and made the blood of the grape. He speaks to God's care, and notice how he frames God. God is our what? Speak of Israel, so let me be more clear. God is their what? Their father. And how do you see his fatherhood? He, he engages in a couple significant points here. Their creation, their national birth, is because God formed them. Right? God has created and unified and brought them together to be a unique people centered around him as their king. And here the framework is as their father. And then as his children, what does he do to Israel? He protects them. He guards them. He secures them. And he's with them in presence. And they're his son. Right? Isn't that exactly what it says? Ask your father. He has made them his son. Jeremiah 31 does the same thing. Let me read for you verses 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise the shouts for the chief of the nations proclaim. Give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame and the pregnant women and she who is in labor. Together a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So here we have that, that same like theological concept, right? Israel is his firstborn. So Jeremiah pictures a regathering of Israel, all the broken, the weak, the hurting, the blind, those who need protection and care. God summons from the nations, restores and shepherds them because Israel is his firstborn. They're his people and he protects and cares for them. So consider the theological uh, framework of firstborn, and then remind yourself of the history in this text. Israel is enslaved. They, they have no national identity. They're a ragtag group of people who's been um, oppressed for nearly a century now in Egypt. They, they are tribal affiliation. They know they're from Abraham. They know they're all under the fatherhood of Jacob. But, but in terms of national governmental centrality, they got none of that. And now God is saying, I'm ready to act. And I will be a father, and you will be my firstborn. And in a few chapters, as Israel is rescued from out of Egypt, and they station themselves at this mountain, the mountain of God, God is going to secure for them a national identity around what we would call the law of Moses. And for the first time, Israel is going to have a, a governmental unity under God's kingship administered through Moses. God is giving birth to a nation. And he says, I am your father and you are my firstborn son. 
And then through the rest of the scriptures, that's a theme that signifies God's covenantal protection, guardianship, and love for this people. And that's why Moses, as he, as he challenges and encourages Israel to trust in God, who's gathered them like a bird under its pinions, who's protected them, to be faithful to their spiritual father, the one who formed them as nation, the one who led them out of bondage, the one who protected them in the wilderness, the one who in small ways and in massive ways showed his attention to their care and needs. You do know that in Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, even their shoes didn't wear out. I mean, that'd be a blessing for our family. Shoes are incredibly expensive. I don't know if they magically grew with the kids too, but that would be another miracle we would love to have. But like, think about like this small stuff. God made sure their sandals didn't wear out. And the massive stuff, manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? It's like what, what kids say when mom makes a special dish, dish. Except this, it seems like it tasted like donuts. Right, like this sweet bread that kind of has a honey flavor, and it's like God gave them donuts. <laughs> because he's their father, and he's caring for them, and he's protecting them, and he's shepherding them through this land in which it's desert today. What, are they, what else are they going to eat? So every morning, they get, what is it? God feeds them and cares for them. And so as he's launching Moses into this terrifying prospect of gathering this tribal group of people and consolidating them into an organized, military-capable, unified nation, he's, he's nationally giving birth to his firstborn, his treasured people. And as Jeremiah is looking at kind of the decline of Israel and, and laying the groundwork for what we would call the new covenant, he reminds them Israel is God's firstborn. He hasn't failed his promises. He will restore and protect his people. God will gather you from the nations. He will establish his people. He's keeping his promises. So as Moses goes out, this care of God is reaffirmed. I will care for you. I will shepherd you. Israel is my firstborn. And implicitly then, Pharaoh's in trouble. Right? Like, you want to get on a mom's bad side. Mess with her kids. Right? Like, you see a bear cub in the woods and you're not very threatened by the bear cub? You're dumb. The problem's not the bear cub. What's the problem? Well, here we have that kind of parental instinct where God is saying, Israel's my firstborn, and Pharaoh, you mess with my people, you're in trouble. And so he warns Pharaoh through Moses, and at the same time, God says, what about Pharaoh? I'm going to harden his heart. Now, this is encouraging for Moses. And here's why it's encouraging. Because he's going to go, and he's going to have this standoff with Pharaoh, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. Pharaoh, let my people go, and he's going to do what? No. And Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses is equipped 
and prepared so that when that no comes back, he doesn't doubt God's word or promise, and he doesn't lose faith in the security under God's care. Because he knows Pharaoh will have a hard heart, because that's exactly what God says he's going to do. He's going to have a hard heart, because I'm going to harden it. Uh, For those that are overly concerned about that, we will come to that in future weeks. So put a pin in it. I hope to come back. By God's grace, I won't die in the next seven days. That's my goal. God declares his care and begins to establish his covenantal protection for his people. Well, that leads to a problem then with Moses. Come back to the text with me. You probably caught that text, and you probably all thought, what is going on here? Verse 24. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, I would take that as Moses, that is, the Lord met Moses on the way and was going to kill Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, for those in the room, when I, I see bridegroom, it always is a little bit of a confusing phrase, but if I just said groom, that might help you. Surely you're a groom of blood to me. So, God let Moses alone. It was then that Zipporah said, you're a groom of blood because of circumcision. What in the world is happening here? Well, I will tell you that, that even commentaries have <clears throat> not given a ton of clarity. So <clears throat> you're not alone in looking at this text going, huh. And I wouldn't fault you for moving on. But I actually think this is an incredibly significant text. I think there's something really precious here. I mean, Moses is talking about himself and his son and his wife for Israel's sake, that they might know something that's going on. He's confessing in some ways to a failure within his own household for which God was so upset, God was so concerned that God was seeking to kill him. This is certainly not a text we wanted to be like, wow, that's hard, let's move on. So what is happening here? Well, first, it, it's clearly referring to circumcision, since that's explicitly what the text says in verse 26. Circumcision, if you go back to Genesis 17, I'll read it in just a moment if you want to turn there. Genesis 17, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. So, so for those that aren't familiar, and I realize that not everyone has this kind of theological framework built into their system yet, but when you hear the word covenant, um, <clears throat> in today's culture, uh, we use the word contract to speak of agreements. Covenant, I, I think, had a more symbolic and powerful expression. But generally speaking, you would talk about cutting a covenant. In, um, in Hebrew culture, to make a covenant is actually to cut a covenant. You don't make it, you cut it. And so when you go to um, Genesis, you'll see that, that Abraham, when he, when he covenants with God, that there are animals that are hacked in half, cut in half, and laid on either side of the parties that are involved in this covenant, Abraham and God. And, and essentially then, the witnesses of the covenant are responsible for making sure enforcement happens. And, and rhetorically, I don't know that there's much um, 
clear evidence that this was actually done, but I, I think it could have been done, is that is essentially those who testify or are witnesses of the covenant would be responsible for inflicting the penalties for failure to keep the covenant. So, for instance, in Malachi 2, when someone divorces their wife because she's not pleasing, in verse 16, God says, the one who does this covers his garments with blood, and God is witness against them. Marriage is incredibly significant. It's a covenant over which God stands as witness, which means God will hold you accountable for failure to keep that covenant. Abraham has this covenant, and the, the reproduction of a cutting, a circumcision, is a sign in chapter 17 of Genesis that you are part of this covenant. So that even those slaves that you purchased were required to go through this cutting, this covenantal symbol that you're part of Abraham's covenant, and that you're, you're brought into it. So Genesis 17, let me read quickly. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with, excuse me, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, so this external symbol, this surgical procedure, which is not a big deal, in the sense of the procedure, is a big deal in terms of the symbol of covenant. If a, if a Hebrew boy is not circumcised, God says he's cut off. So if, if you don't cut off through circumcision, God will cut you off from his people. Right? You'll, you'll be removed from Israel. You'll not be considered an Israelite. You'll be removed or excommunicated, disfellowshipped from God's people. We move forward to Exodus 12, and as Israel is getting ready to celebrate the first Passover, it's required that they are all circumcised. You fast forward to Joshua chapter 5. Israel's on the Jordan River. They're ready to enter. Joshua's now taken over, and God says, hey, hey, hey. You're not circumcised. All of you have to be circumcised because when the 40 years of the wilderness, all these young boys who have been born haven't been getting circumcised. It says no one was circumcised along the way. It was a 40-year way, but it was. So there's 40-year-old men who have to be circumcised before they can enter into the promised land. Now, here's the significance of that. They're about ready to embark on a military campaign in which God is fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham and for which they desperately want God's presence and grace. The last thing you want to do as a non-military group of former slaves whose expertise is marching through a wilderness 
is go into a military campaign against hardened, armed, and equipped forces without God's grace. And so as preparatory work before they enter into this military campaign, they stop and everyone who's uncircumcised gets circumcised and they wait there until the healing has happened. Then they enter into that military campaign of the promised land. Now, I think that's significant because here Moses is about ready to embark on a campaign in which they desperately need to rely on God's grace. And God has said, I'm going to do this because I'm going to keep my part of the covenant. We span over and we look at Moses, who's not keeping the covenant. There's a huge problem going on here. God's like, hey, I've heard my people. I am the covenantal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to keep my promises. And we see that, that Moses, I almost called him Abraham, we see Moses is not keeping the promise. He is not faithful to God. He hasn't circumcised his son. And, and if we're looking at Moses as a leader, even in his own household, God is being loyal to the covenant, but Moses isn't. And so we come along in this text here, and we do not know what grace has led to this moment, but God is about to kill because there's been failure to keep covenant, and Zipporah finds out about it. And that's what I mean about grace. I, I mean, I can only imagine they're in a tent, they're traveling to Egypt, they're about to embark on this terrifying adventure. And somehow God speaks to her, right? God communicates. Like, hey, I'm coming. You know, it's like when you're a teenager and you're watching the movie Mom and Dad Said Not to Do, and all of a sudden you hear the car door in the driveway. You're like, oh man, we gotta fix this thing fast, turn it off, and then you act like you're all reading and you're like pull out your homework and you act like you've been doing what you're supposed to do. Zipporah gets noticed. God is, God is coming, and this is not good. His footsteps are outside the tent. She grabs a flint knife and takes and circumcises her son. And here's why I think, although the pronouns are, are a little bit frustrating for almost all the translators, because we just have a whole bunch of hymns and he's. So we don't always know if it's Moses, Moses' son, or God acting. And that's some of the confusion in the commentaries. So when you read this text, ESV has helped us out a little bit by giving us Names where only the Hebrew text has pronouns. But it seems to be that Zipporah takes and cuts off the foreskin and takes and touches it to Moses' feet as a symbol that she has just, through blood, saved him from the wrath of God. I don't think that's probably an insignificant thought. That is, now she has gotten her groom twice. Once through marriage and now through rescue from death, he is doubly owned by his wife. You're a groom of blood, rescuing him from God's wrath that would have taken her husband away because he had violated God's command for circumcision. It might be worthwhile for us just to consider a moment before moving on what possibly could have caused Moses to disobey? We should be somewhat sympathetic to Moses in the sense that when you look at Moses, you should be like, man, what a loser. You should probably look at Moses and say, he probably was just like me. There's probably something happening in his world that makes me similar to him. 
So what would be the causes of this? Perhaps just minimization. It's a small thing and a small surgery on a small child. Who really cares? I mean, who's doing the diaper exams? Let's just, it's not a big deal. Surely God doesn't really sweat the small stuff. God knows I love him and I'm sincere. Perhaps it's neglect. It's an honest distraction. He's busy in life. There's a lot going on. He's chasing sheep across the desert, and he lands on this mountain with a burning bush. He's not ready for it, but he probably hasn't been sitting there thinking and staying awake at night going, I have not circumcised my son. Maybe it's just neglect. Maybe he's postponing it. I'll get to it someday. It's, it's likely because the Egyptians had a type of circumcision that was it was significantly different than the Hebrews, but it could be just culture. I've done, I've done enough. My culture says I, I've done enough. I'm circumcised, and God should be okay with that. Maybe it's a spiritualization. God knows I'm sincere, and I love him, and I'm devoted to him. My heart is for him. God doesn't sweat the legalistic stuff. Maybe he's just cold, hard-hearted. Or he's gotten to the place where living in Midian, living in Egypt, he really is not worried about honoring God with all of his life. Maybe he rejects immorality, a fully pagan lifestyle, and he's somewhat morally neutral, but he's just cold. I think at the end of the day, we may not know what causes disobedience on such a small thing. But I think we should at least walk away saying, no disobedience is a small thing to God. And throughout the whole of Scripture, there are times in which God graciously responds to his people who have failed to be faithful. But we should never neglect obedience because God has been gracious to others. We should not presume on a God who's patient. We should not presume that we know better than God about when it is right for us to obey. I think there are a lot of corollaries in our life, but can I just challenge you? Disobedience can have a lot of rationale. It can seem very reasonable. And if we're not careful, what we do is we take God's word, God's commands, and we rationalize ourselves to a place of actual rebellion. And, and our, our hearts are such fantastic liars that we think we're fully pleasing the Lord while we are literally disobeying him. Let us not be Moses who has neglected to obey in the small things and is incompetent, unqualified to do the work he's called to do. And let us look to a God who affirms his love for Israel as his firstborn and graciously reminds his people who've forgotten to obey. Isn't God kind in this text? What a sweet God. And at the same time, he is not tolerant. He's coming for Moses' life. He needs to obey. But this is not where the text ends. The, the text ends on a strong note. So if I'm, I'm 
kind of synthesizing the whole text here in light of the theme, I think, of the whole chapter. If the theme of the chapter is faith leading to obedience, we see that Moses, he's, he's someone who went and took, right? He went towards Egypt, took his wife. What else did he went and take? He took his staff, and he goes on his way. And now we come to the part where he wasn't obeying, and now he obeys. And I think he ends on this theme of faith then. You come down to the final part, portion of that text in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go to the wilderness to meet Moses. Again, just a point of God's grace. I hope you see it. Moses throws up this false flag of, I'm not competent. I can't talk. Please don't send me. God says, well, you know what? I'll send Aaron. You read this. He had already summoned Aaron. He prepared for Moses' weakness and Moses' excuses before they're even spoken. Because Moses has Aaron meeting him at the mountain where the burning bushes. Moses meets him and far more loving than I ever want my brothers to be, kisses him. What a happy reunion. His brother loves him and is going to be his support and his faithful co-labor for the next 40 years. What an incredibly gracious gift of God to in advance prepare Moses' helper to send him on his way so that he meets Moses on the mountain. Moses tells Aaron all the words of the Lord which, uh, with the, which the Lord had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Verse 29, obedience. Then Moses and Aaron went. They gathered together all the elders of the people. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 31, and the people, what? Believed. Last lines, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is a people who's been in bondage. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They have been persecuted and oppressed for decade upon decade upon decade. They've watched nephews die. They've seen their friends and family enslaved, working seven days a week, being crushed under the boot of the Egyptian empire. And Moses comes, and through Aaron, who is speaking as though Moses is prophet, they hear of God's promised rescue. And you can't help but imagine in that they hear that God is anchoring this to covenant promises and that he will be to them a father and they will be to him as a son. And they see the power and the working of God in, Mo, uh, in Aaron as he does these miracles with the staff and the leprous sign with his hand and he turns water into blood and recovers the Nile back to water. And, and God shows his power through these men and they believe. Remember verse 1? If I go and I'm like, hey, God sent me, they're not going to believe. The end of the chapter ends with, and they believe and they bowed their heads. They end in worship and hope and faith. And no wonder God doesn't just send his word. He sends affirmation and signs and wonders that this is not merely a word. It is God's word. And the right outcome of faith is obedience. They are not to be segregated. Obedience without faith is hollow and will not save. Faith that has no obedience, James says, is dead and will not save. 
to, to disenfranchise works from faith will leave you no salvation at all. And to have only works leaves you like a Pharisee, a shell with no heart for Christ at all. The New Testament makes plain that the, the theology of this chapter is not merely a theology for Israel then. This is a theology for all of God's people, all of creation, for all of time. When God speaks, his people respond in faith, and faith generates obedience. If someone were to tell you, it's windy outside, <clears throat> you look outside, you don't see wind. What do you see? You see the signs of it. The trees moving do not mean it's windy. Usually it does. But it could be a kid climbing in the tree, pushing branches around. How do you know you have faith? The evidences of faith are robust obedience and love in God. To disentangle those two wrecks both. In this passage, Moses is concerned that Israel will not believe his words alone, and they shouldn't. We should only trust in the words of God. When we come to the New Testament, <clears throat> we can certainly swing the pendulum away from the Pharisees, and we should. But if we swing it too far, we have just as much of a problem. And so let me encourage you, going back to Moses' circumcision, well, Moses' circumcision of Gershom, and maybe Eleazar, that, that we're struggling oftentimes in the small stuff. And that indicates something about your faith. Why are you struggling? Have you ever considered that maybe your problem reading your Bible is not a matter of busyness, but a matter of faithlessness? Or a matter of battle with your faith? I mean, do you believe that God's word is able to give you peace and comfort do you believe it's able to enliven faith and bring dead, spiritually cold hearts to life? Do you believe that this book is able to shape and challenge your thoughts and intentions? Do you believe that this book is able to accomplish all that God promises to? Do you believe that? Because perhaps the reason that this book is dusty six and a half days a week is really because in those moments where you're in bed and you hit snooze, you're not just tired. You're forgetting God's promises. And you're not sitting there saying, I don't believe. You're just not believing. Does that make sense? We don't always have to have the negative proposition. It's not, it's not that I don't think many of you are sitting there saying, I don't think the Bible is really true. I really don't believe that the Bible will change my heart and life. I really don't believe that it is actually a light to my feet. I don't think you're saying you don't believe that stuff. But if we're to investigate our soul, is it perhaps like Moses, where little matters of obedience are actually indicators that we don't truly trust God and his word? We don't really understand and affirm positively what he says is true is true? The text here before us preaches God's grace and care and love for his people. It declares that God cares like a father for his children. It, it declares God's concern that his people obey him by faith. 
And at the end, you see that Israel's response to God's promise of care and rescue is one of faith and worship. And so how I know that many of you actually have faith, although you might struggle in small areas like Moses, is what we just did a few minutes before I got up to speak. And how encouraging is it to see the signs of faith and people gladly singing songs? Why do you gladly sing? Probably 99% of the time my kids hear me sing is here in church with God's people because we know his word is true and we know Jesus is glorious. The reason we gather on Sundays is because we believe. The reason, the reason we speak together with one another and challenge each other is because we believe. And so if you're struggling in obedience, we don't need to try harder and work more alone. We need to evaluate our faith, examine our hearts, ask ourselves where we're struggling in our belief. Where are we struggling in understanding who our God of love and care and comfort and holiness and righteousness and justice and faithfulness? Where are we weak in understanding our God? And what, what am I not connecting from what I, I believe about God with what I am doing in my life so that we don't fall into the trap that Moses fell into? And we don't find ourselves neglecting even small areas of obedience. Faith leads to obedience if it is saving faith. Oftentimes in my heart, <clears throat> I will look at my lack of obedience and tell myself, Mark, you just need to obey. Step back. And say, I do need to obey. But why am I not? What are the causes of neglect? What are the causes of my uh, grumpiness with my children? I mean, besides the fact that my children need to change. What is my, my grumpiness? What is the cause of that? What is the cause for, for my disinterest when I pull into the parking lot at church? I'm going to go because I'm committed to. But why is my heart cold? Like, where, where is the faith that I'm lacking here? God calls us to be thinking people, believing people, and obedient people. It's easy for us to see obedience. It's easy for us to see our disobedience and get after it. But God wants your heart. He wants your faith. And that starts with an understanding of who he is. That's what this text does, right? God cares. And he gives grace and mercy to Moses. He gives the signs and the miracles to affirm his word. God does all of this because he's a God who is loving and holy and righteous and good and sweet to his people. And then God calls his people to act in response by believing and then obeying. That order is incredibly valuable in this text. Evaluate yourself. Challenge yourself and start with a contemplation of our great God. Trust in him and let your trust be seen in a life of adoration and obedience to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text that challenges our understanding, presses us to dig deeper. Lord, we thank you for a God who is faithful to Israel. We thank you for being a God who makes promises to a lone man in the desert of life. And then centuries later, 
you are still keeping promises to your people as you rescue them from Egypt. You're still demanding faithfulness from your people as you engage in that care and oversight over them. Lord, I ask that you would teach us this morning in our hearts to be men and women of faith. Strengthen our understanding of who you are that we might know you, the true God. You are not the fabrication of human hands or human imagination. You are the true and living and eternal God. I ask that we would know who you are. That we would know who Jesus Christ is, the one who as God of gods becomes human to die for us, that we might receive life through his death, that we might be saved from the wrath that comes to all sinners, and we might trust in him. But Lord, I pray that you would guard us from the dishonesty that says that our faith is merely just understanding. But it is a vibrant faith that we are to have. We are to have a faith that transforms our behavior, shapes our life, moves our feet to please you. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that reveals and exposes the inadequacy of the human heart to accomplish these things. We pray that you might stir within your people a vibrant faith to hold to Christ, to love him above all things. We thank you for your same scripture that prescribes for us how we can live in such a way that not only does our heart please you, but our lives please you as well. Lord, strengthen your people to love you and be faithful to you, to trust in you always. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.